Well, this week on Macquarie Street Matters, my special guest is none other than the wonderful member for Vaucluse, Kelly Sloan. Welcome, Kelly. It's good to be here. Great to have you. the magic happens. I'm going to say, I, I feel a little bit of pressure <laughs> interviewing a former journalist. You'll be, you'll be ranking my uh, questioning. I, I won't be doing that. In fact, I'll be, I'm sort of quaking in my high heels at the moment because um, I'm a fan of the podcast as are all our Labor colleagues by the sounds of it. Can't um, stop talking about it, can I? <laughs> <laughs> but also journalists are the worst people to be interviewed because we second-guess everything you're going to say. But Actually, lawyers are pretty bad witnesses too. Okay. But maybe for the same reason. Yeah. Very... I'm in safe hands though, aren't I? You, you are. This is, you. This, is, this, is ga- this is going to be hopefully a fun and informative interview. I didn't know until your inaugural speech, which was incredibly well attended what about four weeks ago yeah you've got five weeks under your belt now in parliament yeah it's pretty exciting i didn't realize that you grew up in south australia i did i'm a south australian and there are a few of us in the new south wales parliament i was i was born in adelaide but i spent um, some time on the west coast of south australia in port lincoln which is a tuna fishing town and for those of you people out there who might remember back is that Dean Lucan? Dean Lucan. Yeah, there we go. Dean Lucan, who was the weightlifter. So it was a, a heavyweight gold medal in, I believe, the Moscow Olympics in 1980. It was 1980. the Moscow Olympics. Was when and I was he, used to train, he used to train on his boat lifting things up, didn't he? I, I think so. I think so. So we're known for Dean Lucan and tuna fishing. We moved from tuna fishing to the Barossa Valley. So mum and dad did a nice little swap from seafood to, to wine. And um, the Barossa was really where I grew up. But I've been living in Sydney longer now than I lived in South Australia. Right. But you're a country girl? Country girl. Local high school? Went to Newry High School. Fantastic. So... Debating, public speaking, surprise, surprise, head of the SRC. You're a bit like me. (laughs) Although you're representing an electorate that people associate with wealth, Mm. I grew up in Newcastle. So, you know, you've come... You've come from more humble background. I, ha- I have. We, we grew up with not a lot of money, but wanted for nothing. A great, you know, family upbringing, mm. typical kind of regional upbringing where you hang out on farms and bonfires and ride motorbikes and do all of that kind of stuff. And uh, But, you know, Vaucluse as an electorate is so often defined by the beautiful Harbourside fringe, but half of the people in Vaucluse have come from elsewhere, just like me, and have chosen to live there, just like me. And many immigrants. And so many immigrants as well. You know, 20% of the population is Jewish. 50% of the population, both of their parents were born overseas. So it is a place, um, a magnet for travellers and and a magnet for people looking for not just the beautiful beaches and the harbour and the proximity to the city, but a real melting pot of ideas. And look, I think that there is a general dynamic nature to many of our electorates. Certainly, you know, you'll probably have, as I do, people that have had many generations in the electorate. But I think the overwhelming majority is a much more dynamic environment, which I think kind of reflects the modern world in a way. It is, but it's funny. You, it's funny you do say that. There's so many travellers, yet there have been a bunch of houses that I've door knocked on where the man will say to me, "This is where I was born in this house, and I'm still here 80 years later." Mm. And I love that. I love those stories. And I say, "Tell me about the street. Yeah. Tell me about what happened here." And it's one of the great privileges. You can get to knock on neighbours' houses or, or, or strangers' houses and just say, "Tell me about your street. Tell me about what's bothering you." I. I've... 
I've mentioned this in earlier podcasts. I, I totally agree with you. Mm. It's that, you know, it's it's the truism that, that reality is better mm. than fiction. You know, being able to hear the stories that people have to tell. Yeah. And it's such a valuable source of actually getting an idea of what's, you know, what is important to people at a point in time too. I found it incredibly intimidating, I have to say, the idea of going around door knocking. The why on earth would anyone want a politician to knock on their door? People loved it, though. I mean, you know, they, they were chuffed that I bothered to ask. They were impressed that in the heat of the election campaign, and I, I had a broken foot as well, so I was hobbling around in a moon boot, and they go, what are you doing? You must care. And and I did, and I thought it was just a, a privilege to hear what they had to say. And for that reason, I'm continuing to door knock because that's where you hear the quiet voices. When you're in the street, people will come up to you. They're often the louder personalities or the, or the people that are really you know compelled to say something because of personal interest or whatever. But when you knock on someone's door, they say, hey, you know, while you're here, I wouldn't normally bother you and ring you up, but this is bothering me. Mm. And that's the stuff that is gold to a local member. You mentioned the quiet voices mm. in your inaugural speech, and it made me think there is a bit of a connection between the quiet Australians and the forgotten people, isn't yeah. there? I mean, they're the people that don't, that have been, you know, brought up not to bother you, that have been brought up to do more than take more, yes. you know, and that's the, that's the way I was brought up, that you put community first and you don't ask anyone of something that might make them feel uncomfortable. And to some extent that the quiet voices that I'm talking about are the people that, that wouldn't ordinarily want to bother you with something. But actually when you dig down or you ask that question, that that is the tenant. That's the undercurrent of public opinion in your electorate. It's so important to listen to it. It is, and and I've had constituents that come and see me in my office with mm. really important problems. Yeah, and they're almost apologetic that they're taking up your time. For, yeah. I think for that, you know, because they're not the thump the table. That's types. right. So. Um, yeah, I had a lovely girl in the office this morning, a 22-year-old, really impressive local um, public school student who was worried about the, the state of public schools in New South Wales. And she wrote to me and she was, you know, and I, you don't often get 22-year-olds writing to you. And I, I grabbed those 22-year-olds yeah. to say, come in, please come and talk to me. Mm. And Hattie came in and spoke to me and I got the perspective of a, a generation that I normally wouldn't meet in my social circles, perhaps, maybe my son's friends now that they're getting older. But, you know, I value that. And you've got to go out and find it. Sometimes government and politics is about making that dollar work better for the community rather than just providing more money as the solution to the problem. Absolutely. We've got an outstanding public secondary school, Rose Bay Secondary School, that is producing outstanding young students, has an incredible subject selection. And, you know, I think it's also our job to promote those schools and say, this is a fantastic choice. It's a choice you have to go to this incredible school and look at the students they're producing. When I go into the public high schools in my electorate, mm. I, I just feel very much at home because they yeah. feel like my school. Yeah. I remember during COVID, we, we opened a new hall in Karingai High School mm. and we had Gladys Berejik then... Sarah Mitchell and myself there, Sarah being the education mm. minister, Gladys was premier at the time, I was there at the local member, all three of us had gone to a public high school. Yeah, and, and you know, 
look where we are. Mm. It's certainly, <laughs> no, well, it's look, been a I mean, great... What I would, mm. You know, I, I saw, we, we saw sort of in my area, under Labor, a whole bunch of schools get closed. It is a, there is this myth that Labor does a better job in education. It does not. Last and, time they were in government, they closed 90 schools. And they closed Vaucluse High School, which is um, now a, a beautiful spot for an aged care facility. But we, you know, it, it doesn't show vision and mm. foresight about population change. And I think, you know, liberalism um, has always promoted choice in education and, and strong values in public education. And as someone who's worked in the education space in the last eight years, I'm entirely motivated by this concept of equality of opportunity. And we need to ensure that our public schools yep. create that equality of opportunity and, for kids. And once you have an equality of opportunity, it's then a question of the individual what they do with it. Yeah, 100%. Um, and then hard work and so on is then the reflection. Too much today, I, I think, equality of opportunity is being equated with equality of outcome. Yeah. And it's really the equality of opportunity that we as liberals mm. really feel strongly about. Yeah. And once, once you have an opportunity, the individual can flourish. Yeah. Now, uh, just going back to your, your, your beginnings mm -hmm. um, as, as a young woman... Your father was, was a mayor, so there was a little bit of a political influence there. Well, yeah. Look, when I was a little girl, when I was three years old, Dad actually won Liberal Party pre-selection for our local seat in Adelaide, and he, he ran it. Was, it was a hard luck seat. It was a Labor seat, but he, got, he had this sort of campaign, join the swing towards the Liberals, and there was a swing heading towards the Liberals in South Australia at that point. So he had, and I would never do this in this day and age, but Dad had this big circus elephant. And so there's this photo of me <laughs> on my dad's shoulders and this big sign, you know, Bob Sloan Liberal joined the swing towards the libs. Now, this was the 70s, right? So <laughs> but you have to forgive him. And I've, I haven't engaged any animals of any sort in my campaign except for my golden retriever. Teddy. But I, I suppose, you know, I grew up, you know, we had a lot of leftover letterhead paper that we called daddy paper and that we would just do, do our drawings on and stuff. So there were political conversations at, at that age. And then we moved around and he was a small business person and mum work, worked in the local school and, and but they were always community oriented. And then dad became the mayor of the Barossa Valley, and um, which I think is the best job in politics anywhere, <laughs> anywhere in the country, except for being the member for Vaucluse. And, and so I suppose I had that, but it came from a sense of service. Yes. And, and we always had the banter across the table. And, my, and, you know, I can see we've got John Howard sitting with us here today. And my husband was a senior media advisor for Mr. Howard. And, and when I decided I was interested in, in politics, Mr. Howard was one of the first people I came and had a chat to. So, um, a man of great wisdom. He absolutely is. Yeah, he's a and, and a lovely man. person too. Very generous with his time. Mm. But you're jumping ahead. Let's just go back <laughs> a little bit. So you finished high school, yep. and then you got a cadetship with the ABC. That's right. I went to uni, and but in the, after the first year, I, I was fortunate enough to get a cadetship at ABC Radio in Adelaide. So I finished my degree while I was working as a young journalist. And, and I think you said your first job. At the tender age of 
just 18, 18 I, I, was to interview mm, the Premier. It was. And back then, for all of you, you know, political swats, was John Bannon. Okay. And and so I, I had to interview him. And I had to bring a work experience student with me who was someone way older than I was. And they had to help me figure out how to work <laughs> the recorder. So I interviewed. It was, oh, it was so nerve-wracking. But it, it went well. But the very next story, and I didn't mention this in my speech, I went to another thing and we, I had to drive the big ABC four-wheel drive and I wasn't really used to this vehicle and I backed into Bannon's car oh, while he was standing there. That could have been a career-ending mistake. It could have been career-ending. <laughs> you, you recovered well. <laughs> I didn't do too much damage. So but I, I started in um, January 91 and that was the year that the Operation Desert Storm, the very months that mm. Operation Desert Storm Storm happened. and Norman... Yep, and that happened in my first weeks of the job. And so, you know, it was a, a week that, you know, and a month and a time that changed journalism where we mm. sort of moved into the 24-hour news cycle. And so I, of course, being super ambitious and uh, maybe a little bit naive, I went and got my passport straight away and a visa and came back to the news director and said, send me to Baghdad. <laughs> <laughs> and thank goodness he didn't do that. Yes. But, uh, but yeah, I've always been wanting to jump in. It's interesting you should mention yeah. that. I, I remember, I don't know if you recall that the, the president at the time, George Herschel Walker mm. Bush, gave a speech announcing the beginning of the war. Mm. And I remember walking in the city and you could just hear that speech coming out of every building. Yeah, wow. And it, it, was, it was a surreal time, wasn't it? Mm. Yeah. So that was the start of my journalism, Chris. I went from the ABC... So Channel 10 in Adelaide briefly, back to the ABC and then got the big call up to, to come to Sydney and work with the Nine Network where I was for 14 years. And that sounds like it was an unbelievable time. It was um, amazing. Were those the days of Sam Chisholm? Yep, and, and the Packers and, you know, the Gingels and whatever. I mean, it was 14 years and of, you know, some of the greatest times of my life, really. I did everything from being in the newsroom to hosting The Money Show, which was a personal finance show, to a current affair, chasing people down the street. Sticking, <laughs> to, your, sticking your foot in doors. <laughs> doing all of that, doing all of that. And, and hosting shows for a period of time like Today Show. I was one of the, the hosts on Today Show for a period of time with Carl and the team. And, and so I, I travelled, I covered you know, natural disasters, I covered horrific events like the Bali bombings, I you know, covered the Oscars, I did, I, did, I did everything you could imagine, bushfires, floods, you name it, and, and got to see through that experience all walks of life, talk mm. to people from not just backgrounds like I'd had growing up in the country or then living in the city, but people from everywhere. And it was, it was a real eye-opener and an incredible privilege. It is a great privilege, isn't it? Mm. I was a media lawyer, actually, oh, yeah, actually okay. doing work for Channel 9 in the early oh, 90s. I might have called you a few times. <laughs> we might have crossed so, paths. Uh, at that. Allen. So, yeah, yeah okay. Patty Jones was my boss. So. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, well, I worked at a current affair, so we did have to call the lawyers. I, I never got in trouble, but we always we made a, sure that you big, guys had a look at our content. Yes. I remember doing a big defamation case up in, uh, in Brisbane. Okay. Uh, with Peter Wilkinson and Ross Gildard were the journalists. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. So that was an interesting time. Mm. That was when there was a lot more money, of course, in journalism and yeah. in investigative reporting, mm -hmm. much more than now. We've yeah. kind of got this very big change yeah. with social media really interrupting the traditional Absolutely. newsroom model. Yeah. 
I mean, I had started at a time where they kept talking about the good old days of the long lunches. I never experienced that. But then you always look back and go, well, actually, I was in my own good old days. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and, and we, yeah, money is tighter. Newsrooms are smaller. Journalists are expected to do so much more. So there is, there's less time to do those investigations. So where you see organisations that still invest in, in good investigative journalism, mm. we need to maintain that. It's so, so important to our democracy. And the big difference with the 24-hour news cycle mm. is that, you know, news can be broken on social media as equally as, yeah. as traditional media. Yep. So well, that's, that's really pushed, to, to my mind, that's pushed news reporting away from just reporting the facts much more into commentating on. Absolutely. And, and it, it's for good and it's for bad. So when I started in journalism, it was hammered into us. You, you just do not declare your politics. You do not have an opinion. You're, you're, you're there to present the facts and a good journalist will weigh those and determine at which dose you'll deliver them. But, but increasingly, and I think it was more the advent of 24-hour news cycles and having to fill airspace is when journalists became commentators more. Back in the early days, Laurie Oakes would be really the only person that delivered an opinion and he delivered it separately in the bulletin magazine. But then there's this mix. I remember one of my very last news bulletins on air with Channel 9 was, and I was very early to Twitter, I had my 14-year Twitterversary the other day. Oh, wow. I was like, okay. oh God, it's older than one of my children. But, but I, I used it as a really effective tool. I was in the studio and you could engage directly with journalists you know, who were there at the door when it was the night that Julia Gillard was knifing Rudd, you know, and, and yes. so it was like, how do I find out what's going on in the studio? I was on Twitter and I knew exactly what was happening earlier than my producers could let me know. Mm. So, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a very useful tool. It's powerful when used well. It makes everyone a citizen journalist and then you've just got to be good at sorting fact from fiction. I was an early adopter, but not an early user. I, mm -hmm. I did a case for the Red Bull racing team and celebrating uh, our great victory at the uh, icebergs, I think in your election, okay. the, the head of media for Red Bull racing team sort of put me, I said, what, what is all this new confangled <laughs> social <laughs> media? So we, 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 worked out, we worked out a Twitter handle, which was Slam Dunk Owl which I've still got. Oh, my God. <laughs> but, I don't okay. use, but I don't use it. <laughs> I'm going to be using it um, from now on. And, uh, and he said, oh, cool, that's a great name. Slam dunk <laughs> Slam dunk <laughs> <laughs> I was going to be Al Bingle, but uh, that was already taken. So I because I grew up we in, need to I grew up in the, Bingle Street. This is not Macquarie Street Mags anymore. It's Slam Dunk Owl. It's the new name. We're rebranding. So uh, anyway, the only one, the only Slam Dunk Owl, the original, the real Slam Dunk Owl. I like it. I like it. So anyway, enough of that. Um, <laughs> now, now you went from the media, yeah. to life education. Yeah. Was that was that the immediate step? Or yeah, it was sort of. It was incremental, and I. I in, in my inaugural speech, I, I did talk about the fact that, you know, it's, it's such a privilege to be a journalist and to see such extraordinary change. And they say journalists have a front row seat to history, and I absolutely felt that I had that. But there's only so... For a while there, in particular after we had our own kids, 
I, I, I started to feel things more deeply. I, I wanted to be a participant in the change that I wanted to see. And so I started to do a bit of not-for-profit board work and, and give back in that way. I was, you know, I started running my own business, doing a bit of other consultancy, and then, you know, a board role at Life Education came up. So Life Education, for those that don't know, is it's the largest provider of preventative health education around the country, most famously known for its mascot, Healthy Harold. You know, nationally seeing about 700,000 students a year face-to-face, a very big outfit. So I was on the board. I'd originally been a volunteer, then on the board, then the CEO retired, and I thought, I reckon I need to get operational, and I did, and it was the, the most amazing And you'd frequently step. come into Parliament. I think that's we when would. I first met you. I, uh, you know. Yeah. I'd, I'd come into Parliament and, and knock on doors of you know yourself and others and say, hey, we need help and what we're doing is really important. So I started to engage with government at a different level, first at state level and then federally, you know, working at policy level in health and education, delivering better outcomes mm. for kids. You know, and, and having that opportunity to engage with families and communities, not just in my own electorate, but, but right across Australia. Right? So from inner city to regional to, you know, you know working in Arnhem Land with remote Aboriginal communities mm. and looking at their very um, unique needs as well. Yes. So I loved it. It gave me such a, a passion for, for change. And I think that's what made me think maybe I need to bring that passion and just know. going back to the you know the even playing field yeah you know if if kids are healthy well yeah. educated and happy yeah and they don't have trauma and violence and whatever yeah. in their life then they have a platform for life well they do and and that idea that equality of opportunity is, is something that really drives me and you know it was the foundation of life education back in 1979 you know when a a bloke, very well-known bloke called Reverend Ted Knoffs, who was running a place called the Wayside Chapel in King's mm. Cross, was literally stepping over, you know, the bodies of heroin addicts. And he mm. said, enough is enough. We can, we can try to help these people, but we need to start with kids and we need to start educating them. And so, you know, the very first classroom opened up at the Wayside Chapel in King's Cross. And um, with this idea that, you know, every child is, is born equal, and is unique and special. And I, I just believe that so mm. strongly. And, you know, when you see kids that don't have the same opportunities as my kids or that I had, I find that incredibly motivating. Yep. And, and so to get out there and deliver education, mm. which is the ultimate equaliser, give someone mm. an education, you give them that opportunity for knowledge, how to manage their behaviour, how to understand what mm. drugs are doing to their body, what poor nutrition is doing to their body, how to be a better friend. And a lot of that stuff, you know, you, you, can, you can say, oh, it's meant to be taught at home. And, and absolutely it is. Parents are always the first teachers. But kids need, they, they need to be programmed, you know, and they need to have the, the resources and the tools to build a stronger life. You, you actually gave... You gave some great stats in your inaugural address mm. as to how, in fact, this young generation are using less drugs and, and are... They're amazing. Yeah, having a more healthy life. Do, yeah. you, do you think that's a direct response to this push to education? It's a, it's a direct response, I believe, to big public education campaigns. And so it's the responsibility of... You know, well, government has taken a big role in that with with population health 
programs and education and also organizations like Life Education, who've been around for the last 30 years and seen uh, the most you know, monumental decline in, in smoking, something that that organisation didn't deliver alone, but did mm. in conjunction with, with government, with Quitline, with all sorts of other public mm. health advocates. And when you have a whole bunch of people swarming around saying, you know, this is the outcome. Now, unfortunately, you know, after that work to reduce nicotine addiction over so many decades, we're seeing a rise in vaping. And a new True. generation mm. of kids who would never have picked up a cigarette now becoming addicted to nicotine again. Yeah. And that's dangerous. And it's a big issue. It's um, a huge issue. I've really noticed in my community how many people are raising that as, yeah. a, as an issue of concern, parents with, with school-aged children. So yeah. it, it's, it's a big issue and something that I think we can do a lot more on. Mm. You also mentioned... And you've got three boys, but I don't think that's why you mentioned it. But, no, it's not. you know, the importance of mental health still yeah. in terms of our, our youth and particularly amongst boys. It is. I mean, mental health is the, you know, well, actually suicide is the leading cause of death in 18 to 24-year-olds and, and boys are, suffer the most. And I, I really believe it's, you know... I feel like we're letting down such an amazing generation of young people, a generation that take fewer drugs than our generation did, smoke less, drink less alcohol, are more community-minded, an amazing young generation of people who are experiencing anxiety at higher levels, who are committing suicide, unfortunately, in, in young men. And I, I, we have to wrap our arms around this generation yep. and we need to learn because there's been such you know, monumental change in terms of the, the feedback and the stimulus they're getting online, mm. the expectations that they have. Yep. And yep. sorry, is that, no, there's okay. a little tiny, <laughs> I think maybe I'm talking too that, much. No, 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 that was just my phone. <laughs> um, but, but we can't just focus, and I will be focused mm. on, on empowering young women and ensuring that mm. they are looked after, but we also have to look after our boys and boys often get forgotten. And look, I think I think this is an incredibly important issue, and and it isn't just about boys, although they um, seem to figure more highly in some of the statistics, but not all of them. No. But I'm a great believer in in life balance, and 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 also I think I think social media is a contributor in this issue uh, to to mental you know to a decline in mental well-being I, I really think as a society we need to focus on having our kids happier more socially adjusted and so on and and for me that's that's one of the reasons I think co-curricular community building activities yeah. you know like sport like music and so All the on stuff that labor's axing well, in there <laughs> that's what I was going to say yeah. I mean it's it really is terrible, and I believe that there is going to be a detrimental impact on the community and on our mm. kids by axing all of those vouchers because there is no doubt that the constant feedback I got when I, when I moved around the state mm. as a minister was just how important those vouchers were to getting kids participating in sport, in music, in, yeah. in, in the arts learning how to swim, all these, you know, incredibly important life skills. I, I, I think it's a shame. And you look at the, the burden on a, on a family, you know, if you look at two teachers and the salaries they have, let's say they have three kids like I have, mm. 
the cost burden of sending your kids to play rugby mm. is enormous mm. and it really does stretch the family budget. So if we can encourage anything. Yep. If we can give people an opportunity to play sport when otherwise, you know, they might miss out, then fantastic. I mean, nobody would suggest that it was good public policy to means test public education. Why, why are the active kids, creative kids, first lap vouchers any different? They are a universal measure to ensure that all children get an opportunity to develop in a way that we need them to develop. Yeah, well, I, I think what we're seeing is a government that is struggling to achieve its unfunded election promises and, you know, sitting in that chamber, it's been deflating just to see the key decisions being axing programs like this, looking for cuts elsewhere. Stamp duty assistance for young people trying to buy their first and home, that, giving them choice. I, I, and I think that was a big mistake. Mm. That was a big economic mistake, mm. you know, a, a real chance to create, to give opportunity, not just now, but over decades for young people. Yep. So mm. on that slightly uh, depressing <laughs> note, but, but something that we will keep fighting for because we are interested in fighting for communities and for good educational yeah. outcomes for our children. Mm. Can I talk about a couple of other things? So your electorate. Yes. I found it fascinating that you said your electorate was, I think, about 25... 24 square kilometres. Yes, 24 square kilometres. Yeah. Two-thirds of the electorate already has high-rise. Flats and, and apartments. Another yeah. 20%... Semi-detached. Semi-detached. Yeah. So when Chris Minns and the Labor Party say that the eastern suburbs needs to take mm. more high-rise development... It does my head in. How's that? It does my head <laughs> <laughs> And, and I, you know, I really reject this notion that we're all NIMBYs because we're saying don't build high-rise. We already have the high-rise. Isn't it just know. blatant class warfare, though? I, I think that's it. It's politically expedient. It's very easy to say because, you know, the, the Liberals have historically had a stronghold there and maybe Labor thinks they don't have to but, worry but, about it. But, but, but I noticed that the Labor member for Coogee and the Labor member for Maroubra was straight out against it. I know. I mean, the, the thing is, is that the, the issue of housing affordability, the issue of, you know, of housing accessibility, rental, let yes. alone buying a place, yes. is a massive problem that cannot be underestimated. And if they're going to pull cheap shots... And, and claim that the solution is in highly densely populated areas in Sydney, then they're not being real. They're I, I not also, being real. I also don't, you know, my father's an immigrant, so I've got, mm. I, I love immigrants. I've got nothing against immigrants. Mm. But I don't understand the chicken and the egg equation of we've currently got a shortage of housing, so why do you bring out a new, million new people into the country before you've actually built accommodation for the existing people that are here surely well i think that's poor labor planning yes right? because we do we do need migrant intake and we do need a bigger australia but you, you in order to do that yeah chicken and egg let's make sure there's somewhere for them to live it's and, hardly and... a very welcoming environment if there's nowhere for them to live and you know and and so i think we need to be really smart mm. because we have we have labor shortages all over the place yeah so we need more people. Yep. Um, we, we need more people to keep our current businesses going. Yeah. And by the way, the eastern suburbs is committed to increasing density and having appropriate uplift in the areas that can manage it. But re realistically, there, there's just not space to, to build new apartment blocks. 
And, and so anyway, th this has got to be done far more smartly than just playing the politics of, so. of, yeah. of class warfare and envy and keeping it away from Labor seats and pushing it onto the North yeah. Shore and the eastern suburbs yeah. Yeah, where, we have, where we have Liberal seats. So Waverley Council is part of my electorate. The density in the Waverley electorate is greater than London, right? So that just gives you a little bit of an understanding of what we're dealing with. So, you know, sensible solutions I'm all for, but cheap politics I'm not. Yep, yep. Now, you, you spoke in your inaugural speech about, I thought it was akin to a personal philosophy. You feel very strongly about trying to bring people together, mm. bring communities together, bring to, to be able to achieve outcomes. Mm. Do you want to say a little bit about that? I've got to remember which part of the speech <laughs> I was talking about. But, I, but no, I, I, I do Well, I saw strongly. that as a yeah. theme coming through. Yeah, no, it is a theme. Your... And I, I do believe strongly in that. And I what I, I find damaging to democracy and damaging to individuals is this culture we have at the moment of left versus right you know rather than what's right and wrong where can we meet in the middle yep. and have sensible compromise which is where I think liberal you know philosophy is really anchored in that idea of bringing people together coming up with sensible solutions and not going to extremes I I I I, I think that's you know, we've lost this sense of how do we come together. Yeah, and presumably in your role at mm. Life Education, you know, you really, you you worked with we everyone. We had to do that. Yes. I mean, at state level, I looked after New South Wales, and as, as in, in the national office, one of my key roles was to bring together our leadership team from around the country, which had different, you know, issues that they needed in each of their different states, come to the table, reach a consensus, and then move forward with an outcome that may not be the perfect outcome for you or you or you, but it brings us, it takes us forward. And I think we have to do that as a nation. We can't be stuck in left versus right. You know, Ronald Reagan talked about, you know, up and down instead of left and right, you know, and I think that's yes. something that resonates with me as well. Indeed, um, indeed. And, and uh, sometimes you get the feeling that people, some politicians are all about the fight, not about the outcome. Yeah. And look, there's an, there is an element of theatre you know, to politics and that's why they call it the bear pit and all the rest of it. But, and I, I think what we were talking about earlier about the 24-hour news cycle and this sort of currency and opinion also adds to it. We have to have an opinion on everything. Why can't we just weigh up the facts and say, I think this is the way forward? Mm. So, I don't know, maybe I'm, I'm naively entering politics with this idea that we can create that sense of coming together. I think well, people are ready for it. Well, I think you, you mentioned in your inaugural speech mm. that your grandmother was worried that politics would change you and yeah. your best friend tried to talk you out of it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I guess that's a reflection of, of the way they see, I guess, business as usual well, in politics. And I think they don't think politics is for nice, good people. I think the public wants good people in politics. And you know what I've seen, and I, I have to be optimistic about this, when I, you know what I saw in politics when I was travelling around the state, dealing with politicians from all parts of politics, whether it's Labor, Liberal, Green, people really deeply do care about mm. their communities. And the, the news grabs that you see in question time are just a small part of the job. And since I've come in, I found it to be an incredibly welcoming environment you know, you walk into the bear pit, but I get a nice friendly wink from one of my friends, you know, opposite or, you know, someone will come up to me and pop into my office from another political party and say, how are you, how are you going? And 
it is a welcoming environment. So yeah. women out there, if you're watching this and you've been thinking about politics, but you've been watching the federal arena and say, why would you? I say, do it because, mm. you know, it's incredibly exciting. I'm, I'm having a ball. And 42, <laughs> 43% of our uh, party room are women now, which is yeah. fantastic. And being able to achieve that without quotas. Mm -hmm. So I think, I think that's a great reflection of how the environment is, is far more pro women coming into politics and lots of young people mm. you know um, yep, 620 635 years of age in our party room yeah and how many in labor none yeah none in i the mean grains. i think that's exciting we've got this mix of of experience and you know former sort of ministers cabinet ministers and then you've got sort of this input of people with fresh perspectives like myself, people that are young, like 26-year-old Stephanie de Pasqua, like Tina Ayad, who's the first um, Lebanese, or the first Muslim woman for the Liberal Party in the lower house. Yeah. I mean, there are, there's a diversity of opinions in our party room, and it's tremendously exciting. Diversity, but really high-quality individuals. Such that, that's high what, quality. That's what excites me. Yeah. Particularly, particularly when you look across the aisle and... I feel there's a bit of a contrast there in terms of their 100%. life experience yeah. and, their, and their ability, if I could put that politely. I mean, you, you come in... They keep promoting this podcast, so I've got to be a bit gentle on them. Well, you're a, you're a star. <laughs> what is it, Slam Dunk Al? <laughs> I'll never live that down now. Now, just going to another issue that I know is not only close to your heart, but also very important to your electorate and your shadow portfolio and congratulations for being shadow environment minister pep 11 was a big yeah. uh, issue during the election there have been some early action by the coalition on that yeah. do you want to just talk us through that yeah so during the election campaign i went to the northern beaches and, and stood at a press conference with people like rory amon who's been elected our member for Pittwater, james griffin a whole bunch of coastal mps and we said that if we were elected we would introduce a bill to stop offshore drilling and mining in New South Wales waters, which most people are more familiar with, you know, PEP 11, which is the exploration permit off our coast. And, you know, we were all individually elected. We didn't make government, but we, we committed to following through on that commitment that we have made as Liberals to coastal communities um, and communities more broadly that are concerned about um, the prospects of damage to marine life off our coast. So Rory Amon introduced a private members bill and it will be debated in Parliament this week and I'll be speaking strongly in favour of it. And as Shadow Environment Minister, part of my responsibility is to take carriage of this bill with others and see it go through the Parliament. We've had it, we're getting really positive feedback from the crossbench right. and I would expect that this is something that Labor would support as well, given that through the election campaign, many of them MPs, including Chris Min, stood up and said, we're opposed to PEP 11, we're opposed to the drilling for petroleum off, off the shores of New South Wales. I, I think it's a really positive and significant sign that the first private member's bill mm. that had a second reading speech was Rory Amon's on this yep. bill. And so it will be debated, as you say, on Thursday of this week. We're very hopeful that, that it will be? get support. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could all come together? You know, we, we mm. saw this idea of it, you know, a, a battle to the top, you know, in terms of it of being a positive battle. Imagine if we could all come together in, in this place and achieve something that is in the best interests of New South Wales and not wait for our federal counterparts who, you know, to come to the party on this. Let's take control of our own destiny. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, one of the things that you 
said you wanted to do was to not be the observer from the sideline yeah. as a journalist, but actually be the agent of change. And this yeah. is a really early example of that. Yeah. So it's great news. And, and I love the way that I've seen you and James Griffin work with Rory Amon mm. to, to, to get this private member's bill to Parliament. Yeah. And, and we're very hopeful of a good result. I must say one thing, and you've already mentioned Ronald Reagan, but one thing <laughs> I really liked about your inaugural yeah. speech was the way in which you talked about your your philosophy as to the role of government. Mm. Do you want to just say a bit about that? I, I really believe that our job is not to do the job 100%. You know, if you're struggling in your community with your household, you know, the best thing I can do is is to clear the way for you. Whether that be if you're running a small business and we need to improve taxation law at the state level that we can or um, improve the environment for you, then that's our job. But the individual should be in charge of their own destiny. I believe that really strongly. We should not be telling people how to live, how to vote, who to pray for, who they can love. We, our job is to stay out of the way. No one wants a politician in their house, right? Yeah. So let's stay out of there and let's create laws, um, legislation, regulation that improves the lives of individual people and keeps us at a distance. And, you know, what I'm seeing from Labor is, you know, is typical Labor policy lately, and we're going to see more of it introduced this week, which would be more a greater burden on legislating, on greater penalties for people who do stuff without really looking at the problems that we need to solve. So Ronald yeah. Reagan sort of <laughs> encapsulated it by saying... Many people look to government to solve their problems. Mm. In many cases, government is the problem. Yeah. And, and look, our, our differences on stamp duty law is a good example of that because mm. we wanted to give people choice. Do you want a lump sum or do you want to pay it over time? Yeah. Whereas Labor very much said, no, it's, it's our way. It's a, yeah. it's a lump sum. We're going to take away that choice. And I think that reflects a different philosophy towards the individual being able to make the mm. best decisions for themselves yeah. and empowering individuals to make decisions about their life is a hallmark of some of those freedoms that you were talking about in your inaugural speech. Mm. It's not just freedom of expression or freedom of religion, but also freedom of enterprise. Yeah. And incentive is the most dynamic force in society. Mm -hmm. It motivates people, whether it's to be the best cricketer that they can be as a young kid or even as an adult, or whether it's to work hard, yeah. earn more money, buy a house, get ahead in life. Yeah. Incentive is the thing that governments need to promote and to uh, have policies that never forget. Uh, look, I, I couldn't agree more. And we've, we've come through an era where, by necessity, Liberal governments have had to reach into the giving, the supporting, the direct supporting, fiscal support of communities because of COVID. But now we have to step back yes. and we have to say, you know, fly. <laughs> but because we, we cannot, we've, we've got to avoid the overreach of government into people's lives, into their pockets, into their minds and say, this is your life. These are your communities. What yeah. can we do to support you? And I guess that's all about recognising when, when is the appropriate time for government to intervene and when is the appropriate time to step back. People on the left believe that government should be there all the time. Mm. 
on the, the, the conservative side of politics, the coalition parties see it as being much mm. more a case-by-case decision. Yeah. And, 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 and I believe that's the way it should be. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you so much for being my guest no this worries, week. No worries, dunk out. <laughs> I hope you've enjoyed yourself. And, uh, oh, it's been, nice. it's been great. You and... should do this more often <laughs> without the cameras. <laughs> we'll, have you, we'll have you back again on Macquarie Street Matters. Thank you very much, thank Kelly, you. for joining me. Really appreciate it.